This is Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul, and we're on a journey to meet the aviators behind the stories, adventure together through the vast, exciting world of aviation, and to inspire and learn from one another as we fly. At home in the air, Sean Cronin tells us that it's just where he wants to be. This speaks of Sean's passion for flying and is a testimony to the fact that it doesn't matter how you get there. An all-rounder, Sean builds them as well as he flies them. An aircraft engineer by profession, Sean runs in engineering works and manufactures aircraft parts, including his own parts for the Bearhawk he is in the process of building. Not least of all, Sean has a sincere desire to share his passion and the freedom of flight as he creates opportunity and offers worthy mentorship to unleash the potential in young aviators, as well as providing an invaluable eye in the sky to protect our beloved rhinos and other wildlife. Okay, Sean, good evening and thanks very much for giving us the second opportunity. I know we had a few snags on the last round, but uh, hopefully smooth sailing today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, uh, hopefully we get it covered and uh, there's less technological interruptions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Sean, um, just to start things off here, we like to do a few rapid fire questions just to let the audience in on or give them a better idea of who it is we're talking to today. So if, you, if you're ready for that, I'll get going. Good to go. Perfect. So first question for you there, Sean, is how many years have you been flying and what's your total time at now? So I've been flying just under six years and but just under 1,100 flying hours, which is quite a rate of hours per year. Considering you're not a commercial pilot, that's a heck of a lot of hours. Yeah, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of it is ended up being in training, but obviously my addiction to this started many years ago and I did quite a lot of flying when I was still an apprentice at Comen, the early 80s. And uh, Sean, next one, what's your favorite aircraft that you've ever flown? My favorite aircraft is, is the Harvard. I just love the aircraft. It's just, it's iconic. It's a thing that as a kid I heard flying every single day of my life. You'd hear a Harvard flying overhead. Probably from, uh, from Donato, Swat Corps, one of those air bases. The roar of the big radial and I love absolutely it. iconic. Sean, in this downtown now, do you have any book suggestions or movie suggestions or anything along those lines where the audience can find an aviation fix? I've just finished reading Flamchat, which is, you know, all about one and three squadron and the Mirage era. The treasurer for EAA is Mark Clulo. He was an ex-Billy Boy at One Squadron. And Arthur Piercy is also an EAA member. He was, he's also an ex-F1 pilot, and he was shot down in Angola. Well, shot, missile hit his aircraft. He made it back to Undangwa, but uh, had no hydraulics and ran out of runway, and the ejector seat went off, and it injured him quite badly, and he's in a wheelchair today. But, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful having those two guys as... Uh, part of EAA. My next book, which I'm about to start, Gunship Over Angola. This is written by Steve Joubert, ex-Alouette 3 pilot. And I've listened to a talk that he gave at EAA and uh, I can't wait to, to get into this book. Bit of aviation history. Absolutely. And it was, you know, that's when I was in the Air Force 79 and 80, when the uh, war in Angola was, was going, that's when these guys were active and putting their lives at risk. Sean, the other day you mentioned you're not a big reader. 
Um, but that's, uh, you also do a lot of uh, just looking at YouTube. And there was something quite interesting you mentioned, which I think is, is worth mentioning again, that you saw on YouTube. Yeah, so I watch a lot of uh, aviation. But uh, I watched the training of the Thunderbirds pilots. And I mean, it's quite, a, quite an incredible talent to have. And it's an honor to be selected to fly for the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. And the G-force training they go through, you know, it's, I mean, it's crazy. They have to build their bodies and their muscles up to withstand that. Yeah, and that's particularly relevant uh, at the moment. I don't know if you saw, they collaborated and flew over, I think it was New York, the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels together in formation for COVID-19. Uh, Correct. I mean, it was a, a beautiful video to have a look at, yeah. Excellent. Thanks for that. And next one, Sean, if you had to choose glass or steam gauges? I, I, I must be honest, I love steam gauges. They're just so easy to, to read. It looks like an aeroplane. Probably not to, to the millennials like you guys, but <laughs> um, I'm getting used to a glass cockpit. I'm busy building a Bearhawk, and I'm going to put a, an MGL EFIS in there, which has got everything in one gauge, and I'll just put a, an additional airspeed indicator and a slip gauge, and that's it. Bear essentials. Obviously, then there's a weight benefit as well. Yeah, big weight benefit. It's, it's probably on the wrong side of the of the center of gravity, but it is a weight benefit. <laughs> and out of interest, say, Sean, uh, how far along uh, the production are you of that, that Bearhawk? So I started uh, in September last year. I got together with a guy by the name of Kunrad Underhey. He's busy building two of them. And I was amazed. I mean, the, we've got a guy by the name of Andre Kutsia, who's a, who's a supreme welder, and he built all the, I think he built all the bush babies and he, he welded that together, but it was out of the jig in uh, a little over two and a half days. That's top and bottom and the sides, and it was, it kind of looked like a, a jungle gym or an Eiffel Tower. Wow. But it was, it was about three and a half weeks, and the fuselage was done, every little tab, and there's about 200 little tabs to weld onto it. Yeah, it's awesome. We could probably have a whole entire show on just the build of, of one of these bear hawks. Yeah, it sounds incredible. Quite amazing. Look, I'm, and a passion project, I'm sure. I'm blessed that I, I have an engineering shop. I made my own uh, brake master cylinders. I'm making my own rims, I'm making my own calipers, I'm making my own little throttle quadrant. I've made all the bushes, pins. I made the pistons for the undercarriage and the suspension. So it's quite nice for me. I mean, it's and a lot of times if I make the master cylinders, then I make four or five sets and sell some on. And that's how I fund the project. This is where passion and strength intersect so nicely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, she's that's awesome. And must just be so much more rewarding to fly something that you've actually built yourself. I can only imagine. But um, short to keep these questions as rapid fire ones, I'll hit to the yeah. last one now, which is if you could go back in time, is there any advice that you'd give your younger self? I probably have applied to become a pilot in the Air Force instead of just normal ground crew. You know, I, I didn't think I had the, the ability then, but I'd love to have been a fighter pilot or, you know, one of those things. But I'm still thankful that I did a trade in aviation. And it's taught me to work properly and, and it's really the best thing I did. 
No, and uh, just the fact that you've stayed with aviation. So regardless of whether you uh, went the Air Force route and became a pilot then or not, it's something that has been a passion of yours. And the, the trade has, has funded the passion, which is uh, really a nice, nice way to do it. Absolutely. I just think it's so, so important. Right from when I was a kid, when I heard an aeroplane, I'd run outside and stare up at the skies and, you know, long to be up there. And that is the type of youngster that I look for today um, when they want to come and do flight training with me. I don't want a guy that just wants to fly. I want a guy that runs outside every time he has an aeroplane, just like you two do, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes all the difference. <laughs> there hasn't been too much running outside recently. <laughs> no, there hasn't been much. <laughs> But uh, on that note, you mentioned uh, the, the T6, the Harvard, uh, being your favorite and just iconic, uh, the sound, and it's just pure aircraft. I've also had the privilege and opportunity of flying in Harvards before. So that's obviously um, hearing them as a child and those that rumble of the, the radial. But what is your story? Like, where did the journey begin and what was it that really... Uh, got into your head. So I can tell you, my late father was a was a pilot in the Second World War. His brother was killed in flying a DC three in um, southern Italy, also in the war. Uh, Dad never flew after after the war, but leave me, him and I would stand outside and look at airplanes. And I remember when the first seven four seven arrived in this country. We lived in Rosebank then, and I remember Dad saying to me. If you have a look, the airplane will have five engines on it. And I could never figure out why it would have five engines. But lo and behold, it came over Rosebank, which was part of the flight path. And I think it actually did two flyovers at, of the Joburg City. And many years later, I became very, very good friends with Carl Jensen. And I asked him the same question. I said, you know, Carl, this first aircraft arrived here with five engines and no one could ever tell me why? Yes, and he, being the gentleman, he, he really is. Gave me a full um, briefing on how much more runway it uses. It's the only way they, they, can, the, they can transport the engine in a cell and the engine. He gave me the weight of the engine, weighed six tons. He said the aircraft was configured with an inboard hoist and they would pull the engine up and they'd put a cowling over the over the compressor section. So on the bypass, you, you would have your airflow going through the bypass of the engine. He gave me the stats, how much more fuel it used. I think it was 6%, if my memory serves me correctly, and how much more runway it would use to get airborne. So days like that in your life, when you remember the first 747 with five engines and no one else remembers it, <laughs> it goes, goes to show how far back it goes. Brilliant. So you didn't start flying immediately. Uh, you, you did your trades and uh, worked. You mentioned you worked for the Air Force and you worked for Comair Services. When did you actually start flying and, and what was the opportunity that brought that about? Okay, so I'll go through the whole thing. I went into the Air Force in 79 and 80. I worked for 7 Squadron Impalas down in Cape Town at uh, DF Milan Airport. I got my butt into any single thing that could fly. I mean, I used to fly in an albatross at night in the late afternoon flight to Port Elizabeth, my sister would pick me up. She lived there. And I'd be back the next morning and I'd be in a lot of trouble because I'd missed roll call. It didn't matter. 
then I got into a sortie of LOX and I'd fly in those and I used to go and do a bit of night flying in DC-3s and I had the privilege of flying in the Shackleton, albeit only a, a length, a sort of a pretty big circuit, but still old shack, which I never thought would even get airborne. It didn't seem to pick up any speed down the runway. Flew in the Impalas, flew in C-130s, C-160s. Then I came out of the Air Force, did my trade at Kame, got a job in, in literally two days, interviewed and started at Kame. Anyway, did my trade, all three standards, engines, airframes, hydraulics. I worked, uh, worked in the engine shop. Uh, then I was for a while put on uh, assembly in aircraft. There was quite a big swing of, of aircraft coming into the country in, in those years in, in big crates. So for a while I, I used to uncrate them, jack them up, uh, put the wings on, pull the undercarriage on, put the tail feathers on, wriggle the, all the systems, and then I'd have to test run it, then prepare the aircraft for a CFA test flight. So I would load up 10 kilogram sandbags and refuel the tanks and we'd get a maximum all up weight and then we'd go and fly in the GF. And that's when I first flew with Scully Levine. If he was available, then he would he would come and do the flight, you know? That's awesome. I won't tell you what he did to me in a 421, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> a barrel done um, ILS. <laughs> so I mentioned that I uh, had the opportunity to fly in the Harvards. That was with uh, with either Scully or Ellis. So I've, I've okay. been there, done that. I know what you're talking about. No, they're just uh, incredible, incredible pilots, those guys. And... Um, yeah, so I learned I learned lots at Comair, and it was a wonderful trade. And then I left that. Just before I left Comair, I was going to start doing my PPL, and there was a an old guy that came to me and said, Sean, why do you want to do your PPL? What do you want to do with it? So I said, well, I just want to fly. So he said to me, if you just want to fly, you'll never keep your license current. He says, you'll let it lapse in three years. He said, do it when you're ready, later in life. Go and do it. Get a couple of things behind you and do it when you when you're a bit more financially stable. So from an apprentice to a pilot is also you know you just can't afford that. So I did that and it was always stuck in the back of my head that I would get onto it one day. But I still religiously went to all the air shows and I started a business which is uh, an engineering business and I was doing work for. Uh, people like Nationwide making not anything specific, but uh, jacking points and special tools and stuff. So anyway, got the engineering business working for myself, and then I decided I was going to go gliding. And uh, that's really not a fast sport. <laughs> so attempts at, at gliding, I thought this was not for me. And I went out, as I say, uh, just almost six years ago, to a place called Silver Creek, which is where I now have a house and I train from. And I went for a flight in a, in a Batawk, and that was me. This high-speed 70-knot aeroplane just appealed to me, you know. Uh, what really appealed to me was the fact that they used for, for conservation. And I just, I love the bush, and I love bush flying, and it's just, that's just where it went. So that's another question I'd like to ask you, and that is why conservation? I guess, I guess it's just, for me, it's, it's real flying. I really couldn't be an airline pilot. I couldn't 
sit at a flight level and uh, drink tea all day, you know. So I love bush flying. I love the bush. I probably concerned about the the amount of rhinos that have been decimated in the last uh, last couple of years. And so that just appeals to me. You know, rhinos, illies, all those animals that are, are just being carved up for for ivory and their, their horns. I guess it's just where I want to be. And on the lines of conservation, have you seen any um, noticeable impact on uh, the, the poaching, just having these patrols in the air, just having a presence? You know, I don't know if it's measurable at all, Paul, but uh, certainly what you hear from the farmers, and they say as soon as the aircraft is in the area, crime even in the little settlements around the farm seems to calm down a bit. Yes, and the guys don't realize actually how easily they probably could hide away from that aircraft, but the presence itself and just having you uh, in the area is going to be a massive deterrent. Do you, how often do you do these patrols? At one stage I was doing these patrols to the northern Transvaal quite regularly and, um, and eventually got to a point where this one farm which was costing them over 35,000 rand a month to keep their, their rhino uh, safe. So it's a huge cost. And then she couldn't afford, afford it anymore and sponsors and donors were running out. But, you know, I still got involved with helping to train some of the pilots, youngsters that want to go and work up in Pilonsburg and go and build hours. So I get involved with, you know, a bit of advanced flying for them. And then with, for Pilonsburg, I offer my, my services, totally voluntary, my fuel, my time, my aircraft. Brilliant. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. I hope that guys out there are listening and, and are willing to do the same. And I think it was you that said the other day, just in terms of uh, flying for a purpose, you know, it's pointless just flying. And it's really nice to have something that you are flying for. Yeah, absolutely. Before I take any, anyone's money that comes along and says, I want to be a pilot, I sit them down and I ask them, what do you, and exactly the same question that I got asked in 1982 or whenever, what do you want to do with it? So if the guy says, I just want to fly, I say, well, just put fuel in the plane and let's go fly. Get your fix. Yeah, but I'm not going to put you through the course and put you through the training and waste my time and your time and take your money if you're not going to do something with it. So you must either, A, want to own your own aeroplane. So that's a great reason to fly. B, you want to go on and complete your PPL or your commercial pilot's license or you want to go and become an airline pilot or a transport pilot or a survey pilot or you want to just stay in the bush and try and you know, I think there's business opportunities. If you've got a little back talk, you can possibly rent your services out if you've got your commercial license. Um, they're even using these things now for crop spraying. Wow. Uh, Sean, I just wanted to touch on, you mentioned, you know, how or much of an expense it is for these farmers trying to protect their, their game. It made me think of a story when I was in Valkofunen not too long ago. We were with some family friends and just on a game drive. And next thing, this Robbie 44 comes buzzing over the hills, darts down into the valley, 
and there was a herd of earlines and they were trying to dart one of the earlines. And it turns out they're developing this new system where they were tracking the airline. So they had one or two airlines with uh, collars on. And what they were trying to do was, was see if they could differentiate the movements of the airlines. And their theory was, if there are any poachers or anything in the area, the way that the airlines react, they can tell and locate uh, the poachers that way. You know? And this was the way that they were going about. And it just, it just made me think of how technology is going to come in and play a huge role, I think, in, in particularly conservation. Um, we just had yesterday the certification of the first electric aircraft They're out of Slovenia uh, called Pipistrel. I'm not sure if you saw that. Pipistrel, uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was just looking on their websites and they've got some incredible things. You know, they, they can turn an aircraft into a complete unmanned air vehicle uh, with surveillance and infrared and all sorts of things. So I just wanted to know if you've, you know, seen any technology uh, besides that, within South Africa and, and in the industry there? Um, I've, I've actually been following the transition into electric vehicles, but obviously my interest is in aviation. So the electric aircraft era is, is coming. And um, I, I think what a wonderful way to, to do training. Even though it might only have an hour's duration, you... Um, you start up, you taxi out, you take off. There's no 20, 30 minutes warming up. I just think it's a, it makes sense for, for training anyway. I see last week in um, African Pilot, they flew the first electric caravan. That's right. I saw that. Must be a tremendous amount of shaft horsepower to, to pull that thing into the air. And that's fully loaded. Obviously, talk is, is uh, instantaneous talk as well. That's uh, something that can't be said for any uh, combustion engine or, or uh, even turbine engine. That's right. Yeah, you wish they could charge the batteries quicker than you could fly, the, fly them out, you know. I mean, when they get to the point where they are able to sustain that time on an electric engine, you can imagine the, the carbon impact, the green impact that it will have, not having to burn fuel. Well, that's exactly it. It's exciting times. I mean, you know, we're just on the brink of, of all these technologies exploding and really changing life as we know it, particularly in the, in the aviation industry, you know, with these E, VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing um, aircraft. And I think there's going to be huge disruption, which is, which is really exciting. I think that Pepper's trial was flying at about 3 or $8 an hour. I can't remember. Yeah. The... Yeah. So it was, I mean, uh, the running costs were, I think, 50 euros an hour. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So that's going to be a bonus for training as well. And uh, in fact, on that note, Sean, we're obviously all aware that one of the biggest obstacles to training in aviation is cost. And I know that you have got a, a training strategy uh, where you help a lot of youngsters in their career path towards being a, a pilot with, for whatever reason. Uh, do you want to just elaborate on that strategy that you uh, are using for training? A lot of guys try and teach a pilot to be a, a 747 captain um, when, he's, when he's just starting out and learning to fly. They bombard him with way, way, way too much information. You know, um, Billy Joel didn't pick up a guitar and, and play the thing straight away. I mean, he had to, he had to go through the, the learning curves. So get them flying first. Get them used to flying. Let them do an LSA license. Let the guy fly, but teach him the fundamentals correctly. Become comfortable in, in the aircraft, become comfortable in, in the airspace, 
because that becomes second nature. You guys know that. You'll see exactly what direction he wants to go. Is he someone that wants to become an ATPL pilot? Yes, he is. Well, he'll he'll progress naturally to go on and do his PPL. Then he'll he needs to go an hour build. And who can afford two and a half thousand rand an hour to to hour build for a com license? So that's where he now steps back into the batalk and he goes and he goes and flies a bit of anti-poaching. He's not a commercial pilot; they can't pay him, but he gets to fly for free and he gets to to build hours. But in the meantime, he's gaining experience, and bush experience is important. Learning about wind, flying low level, good stick and rudder, basics and fundamentals. Uh, that's exactly at the fundamentals. So many people who rush through the process, I suppose, miss out along the way. Uh, and just besides that, it's obviously also a great saving in costs. You know, at PPL today in South Africa, you're looking at about 150 grand, whereas that's significantly reduced going the LSA route or the NPL route. I was just wondering what, um, you know, what other restrictions, if any, would there be on, on a student going the NPL route? I know, you know, the aircraft's obviously certified to a lower weight and lower rate restriction. What, what other restrictions would, would people going the NPL route face, Sean? I don't think there is any other restriction. You know, he, it's, it's, as you say, it's a weight limitation, but he, he writes his, I get him two licenses, he writes his PPL subjects, he gets his NPL license, and then he's, got, he's basically got three years to, to get his um, PPL flying done. But he would have done his cross countries, he would have learned to, uh, to fly the aircraft and be comfortable. Once, once he steps up from PPL, it, it'll be quite quick for him to get to commercial uh, because he's built up hours on, a, on an aircraft that's running at, if you own your own that talk, if you're fortunate enough, you're probably in for about 600 rand an hour. Wow. And uh, yes. that's a huge, huge saving. Massive huge. saving. Massive. Even on the, the cheapest of the fixed-wing aircraft, you, you're looking at a 50% saving there. And a 50% saving of an hour building of 100 hours a long way. Um, is significant. So, you know, I work, I do a lot of work for microaviation, who are the guys that manufacture the Bat-Hawks. I make a lot of parts for the aircraft, and I help them with the development. And with that working closely with them. They um, assist me in trying to get youngsters into, uh, into aircraft. So I'll set them up in a little consortium of two or three people. We'll form a, a little PTY Limited, and there's three guys sharing one aircraft and, what, and the costs of that aircraft. And the guys use that to, to build hours and do the more advanced bush flying. And when they're finished and they're ready to step up to commercial, they sell their share on to, to some other youngster in that same aircraft. That's um, brilliant. But I go one step further. And I, when I teach him, I teach him to maintain their own aircraft, change their own oil. It's under the supervision of an AP, but they must learn to change their own oil, change the spark plug. But, you know, if they've got a mag drop, how to, how to resolve which cylinder it's on, what you look at when, you, when you're doing a pre-flight and understand what you're looking at. Don't just look at it and go, the instructor said, I must look at this area. What are you looking at specifically? That's so inspiring, Sean, that you are doing that because you're giving these guys foundations uh, that they will never forget and uh, the fundamentals. And we've spoken to several guys about pilots that they train now in the airlines who missed out on fundamental lessons, 
stick and rudder. And it shows in their proficiency much later on in their career. And I think even having that technical background, uh, you know, their technical ability, the ability to learn uh, technical aspects of an aircraft will be far more because of the foundation you're giving them. So that really is great. Look, I think it's, I think it's important. You know, anyone can parrot fashion, read study notes and go and write an exam and you've forgotten everything the next day. How does it actually work? So I'm busy with a young guy now and um, I was doing some work on, on uh, my aeroplane and I made him do the work. We'll get that signed out by the AP, which is the normal thing, but um, I can still teach the guy the right way to, of doing it. And once he's done it, uh, he'll never forget it. I think that's the big thing in training and t teaching is out of the books, like you said, once he's written that exam, it's uh, information that is quickly lost. But if he's actually changed the plugs and changed the oil, uh, you'll never, ever forget that. And I mean, let's take a, let's take a simple thing like you've, you've done a, you've landed out in a, in a private strip somewhere and you've got a nose wheel puncher on your aircraft. So I'll teach them how to turn it into a tail dragger with a bit of duct tape and a stick and uh, fly home. <laughs> it's only in Africa. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, in terms of the flying training and your own experience in the bush flying and, uh, like you said, low flying and uh, over the reserves, etc. What uh, fundamentals would you like to teach guys out there? You guys know. You've all been through it. When you're first learning to fly, you fly inside the cockpit and you. You're petrified of stalling the aeroplane. You just think it's going to blossom out the sky. As soon as you get to stall speed, it just, I don't know, life stops and it just falls and you can't catch it. And so one of the things is, is I get them to fly slowly until eventually you'll see him start relaxing. And we'll do a series of gentle turns, but he can't go faster than 40 knots. End of story. And uh, then he starts relaxing. Now he starts looking around. Now he's looking outside of the cockpit. Now that's a, that's a nice position to be in. When you feel what the aeroplane's doing with your bum in your hand, without looking at, at the airspeed, you can almost hear how fast you're going. It's quite interesting you say that because we asked a very seasoned airline pilot who trains on uh, A330s and A340s, and he said pretty much the same thing. He said he teaches attitude flying. Quite interestingly, when... I did my PPL, I had an instructor that we had quite a big headwind and we were in a Cessna 150 and he said, today we're going to see if we can fly backwards. <laughs> and we <laughs> flew into the wind and, did you manage? and slowed it right down. We didn't fly backwards, but I think we slowed our ground speed down to about five knots. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's definitely something that every pilot should do and, and recognize the envelope of the aircraft and that it that, like you said, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. And I think we should all, at some stage, learn to fly that aircraft on the envelope. Absolutely. And um, if I ask you, how many, how many guys do you see coming in way too fast on their approach? And they do it all the time. Yeah, often. Because they're not accustomed to slow flight. And they're, they're just thinking, you can't stall the aeroplane. I mean, you've got to fly it with, within its limitations but uh, guys will always add on 10 knots 15 knots just for their own comfort 
Yeah. So that's great. That was a, a good fundamental to teach the youngsters out there. I think there's a couple of guys further on in their careers who would commend you for saying that. Um, just uh, to move on on the questions, I am interested to hear if there's been any significant plateaus in your training uh, where you found, uh, found it a little bit more challenging in your own personal training. I've always believed if you want to do something well, you must be able to teach it. By teaching it, you're going over your own do's and don'ts every single day. And when I, when I do the odd checkout ride for a guy and he hops in the airplane, you'll find out that he's forgotten all his vital checks and he's developed a bunch of bad habits that he's not even aware of. I guess that's why we do checkout rides. So being an instructor is, for me, is, is important, great, it's sometimes boring as hell, but you can see when the cricket falls off the cork and then... Nothing more is going in. Exactly. That instruction it definitely it reinforces, you know, all of those things that we do learn. And I found from doing it every day, critiquing other people, I just became so self-critical and, and wanted to just improve and keep that standard. Um, so definitely the best rating I've also done so far. I still got to do my tail dragger. Yeah, I'm busy with my, my tail dragging scenario now. I've got about Probably about 15 or 16 hours in tail draggers. I think that'll keep you humble and that'll keep you honest for 100 hours at least. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, it's a nice, it's a challenge to fly. And I look forward to getting into my little bear hawk and I want to perfect every landing. I'm, you know, a bat hawk is a very easy airplane to fly. But it's nice to come in on, on an approach and I run it on the left wheel and I put it back on the right wheel. When you've got that type of control with an aeroplane, that's how I want to end up being with a tail dragger. That's awesome. I think the tail dragger pilot that I look up to has got to be Scully. He's probably got the most tail dragger hours out of anyone in the world, probably. <laughs> I was actually going to mention, is, is it Scully, the video of Scully where he, he was doing it in a twin? I don't know if it was Scully or somebody else. He touches one wheel, touches the other, engines off, does a barrel roll, and then lands the aircraft again. That was oh. Bob Hoover. Bob Hoover, yes. Bob Hoover, that's right. Yeah. yeah, you've got to go. That's what that made me think. You have to go look at Bob Hoover on YouTube. Uh, and he was all about energy maintenance. It really, right. his entire uh, flying philosophy was around maintaining the energy of an aircraft. And You're an aero commander so with a cowboy hat on. And he could, he could do a barrel roll with a glass of water on the instrument panel and not spill it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, Bob Hoover. I'm going to go watch some of those tonight. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Very cool. And Sean, any stories you have for us where you prepared to share a close call that taught you a lesson? Yeah, I'll share a, I'll share a close call. So the big W word, which is not weight, but it's weather. That is uh, probably the thing that kills more pilots than any, anything. Weather and stupidity. And um, one Saturday afternoon, jumped into my aeroplane with a, with a mate of mine who's also an instructor. And it was very calm. Unbeknown to me, it was really the calm before the storm. We taxied onto the runway and we did our checks and I powered up and off we went. And it's an uphill takeoff. It's on a game farm. There's lots of wild animals that sometimes cross the runway. And um, as we got airborne, I glanced to my left and I saw the dust overtaking me up the runway. You know, when you get those gusts of wind just before a thunderstorm. Your heart skips a beat. 
Oh, man. I stuck the stick forward. I think the undercarriage went through the tops of a few thorn trees without causing too much damage. But it was the only way I could keep airspeed. And um, I just kept the power wide open and the nose down. If I pulled the nose up, we were gone. I did the flattest turn you've ever, ever seen in your life. Because if you lifted the wing up, it felt like I wanted to throw you upside down. When we got to the end of the runway, we were probably doing about 140 knots ground speed. And um, I turned it. I mean, it was it was one of those 60, 70, 80, 100 k an hour winds that just came up. And um, I sort of skidded it around, holding the wings level and using the, using the rudder so that the wind never got under the wings. And I eventually got it turned and I flew down the fence line and the aeroplane was moving sideways nose pointing directly into the wind and I just had enough power on to fly down this fence line. So we had zero ground speed and when I got in line of the runway, I, I went to full power and I went over the fence and we landed and we vowed to never tell anyone. So <laughs> it was two of us who were two instructors, but I, that was the most scary moment of my life. Um, so I've, I've got huge respect for weather and wouldn't well you just broke you just broke your vow but i think uh, it's very valuable that you did because i think a lot of guys in small aircraft think they're immune to wind shear for instance they think oh it's only an airline thing and uh i mean that obviously was a microburst that turned everything on its head and wind shear is a very real thing and i think the only avoidance is not going into it in the first place and so yeah what a lesson thanks for that sean appreciate yeah. it Sometimes you want to be on the ground wishing you were up there, not the other way around. But as with anything, I think it takes a long time to read weather. You don't just become a specialist in weather and reading it overnight. That's one area that we're all still learning. And again, uh, in one of our previous interviews, weather was definitely the, the threat that came up most prominent of all of them. So it is a trend. Sean, just as we, as we draw to an end, what is it about aviation that inspires you most? Um, I just think the, the thrill of flight. Carl Jensen has a very good saying, which says, if you've ever flown an airplane solo, you'll know why birds sing. And that is just aviation. So I don't know. It's just where I want to be. You guys know it's when you're up in the clouds, it's where you, you're at home, where you want to be. Beautiful. And a beautiful message, I think, to a lot of guys who are at the moment, you know, Emirates just uh, retrenched another 600 pilots yesterday oh, due well. to COVID. And, yeah, a lot of those obviously are South Africans in, in fact, our generation of pilots. And uh, so, yeah, just you're a passionate pilot. And I think that's where it lies, is in the passion and why we fly in the first place, not for a salary. Yeah. So just a message from you to keep them motivated. Stay off the laptop, stay off the iPad, and every time you hear an airplane, go and identify it. If you have a dream of flying, make it a reality. It's not out of reach. It really isn't. There's ways and means of getting, getting your license done I help where I can, you know, I just try and get as many youngsters into the, into the air as possible. And uh, I hope there's many more to come. 
whether whether there are flying jobs in future is remains to be seen. But I think aviation is going to take a different direction. I think instead of having uh, commercial flights that are flying from big centers, I think there's room for small aircraft, two, three, four, five, six-seater aircraft, to you know take you to a connecting flight from Lanseria to Rustenburg, and a, a little flight from there to your settlement, which is you know, probably 100 kilometers away. Uh, why should you drive that route? All you need is a is a tar road or a, a clearing enough for a, a little two or three or four seater aeroplane. So the, the bicycle wheels are going to become smaller. Let's put it this way. We offered government to fly COVID medical supplies to various little settlements. And we put it out to the EAA members. And in two days, we had over 300 aircraft volunteered from trucks to PPL aircraft. We had caravans, we had HS 125s, we had a 737 that somewhere popped its head up. And the guy said, we'll, we'll fly COVID tests to anywhere. Let's, let's, have a, let's have a whole lot of hubs. Let's make Rustenburger hub and Britzer hub. And from Brits, you can do all the little settlements around in the northern northern Transvaal. Bring fly the the um, tests back to Brits, and one aircraft can fly all those tests back to Joburg. Yeah, it's amazing. Eh? Everyone just wanted to get in the air. Well, besides that, yeah. of course. <laughs> but I just think that's going to be more the future of aviation. Instead of these big commercial airliners flying from big centres, I think small dirt strips in the in the middle of the bush is is probably the way to go yeah no that's an awesome story uh sean and i think it speaks to the the spirit of aviation you know we see it also in the battleers where people are so eager to get involved and and volunteer and, and i think it's just all the more reason why you know the industry will endure and why things will turn around uh, and you know we'll find ways of, to work around uh, just as you have throughout your career and, and maintain that passion and you know, pure bliss within the aviation and, you know, doing the things that set your soul on fire. And I think that's what really gets me started and, and hopefully the listeners as well, you know, and it's, it's truly inspiring. Yeah, look, I mean, guys are never going to stop skydiving. They're never going to stop doing sports that require aircraft to uh, get them up there. So you can't change that part of it. No, and let's not forget why the Wright brothers did what they did, you know, was watching birds in the air and they wanted to get in the air. I don't think they had any massive uh, images of grandeur of 747s transporting passengers across the globe. And it's wonderful. This is almost like a little reset. And it's very sad what's happened to airlines and uh, career pilots around the world. But for those who are passionate about aviation, I think you've named it today. Uh, they can continue flying if, if there's a will, there's a way. And, uh, I th thanks for that, because it's really about the passion of flying rather than the career itself. Absolutely. And I just want to say you guys are doing a great job giving the information out to the youth and motivating them and giving them the, the road that you've, I mean, it's a hard road to get to where you guys are. And it's still, a, still an uphill struggle, I guess. But um, it's good work on your part. Just one, one interesting question I want to ask both of you. If the Wright brothers' surname was wrong, do you think they would have still got it right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they had to. And if they didn't, 
it would have been a joke forever in aviation that the wrong brothers got it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, Sean, I love your idea of, uh, of going a little bit backwards in aviation and landing on roads again. If we can get that right with the CAA, that will be a feather in our cap in itself. But uh, we've run out of time, so thank you so much, Sean. Really appreciate your time and everything you've shared with us today. It's been a great chat. Thanks to you, Paul and, and Rhett, and uh, keep up the hard work. And Rhett, you now speak soon about the next chapter. The next step, absolutely. Thanks, Sean. We really appreciate it, man. Good to see you again. Well, guys, all the best. Take care. Cheers, Sean. Bye. You've been listening to Startup to Shutdown, the podcast with Rhett and Paul. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iono.fm. And as our valued listening community, be so kind as to provide us with some feedback by leaving a review, rating it, or by sending an email to our address in the show notes. We rely on your engagement to provide you with the best value and entertainment possible. Keep the blue side up and stay the course. Until next time, bye-bye.